بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respects and listeners, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الله سبحانه وتعالى has created man in a very unique form. And Allah has given him intelligence. And Allah has blown into him a ruh, a certain spirit. It's this ruh which makes man man, which makes a human being a human. When Allah created Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam, he said, فَإِذَا سَوَّيْتُهُ وَنَفَخْتُ فِيهِ مِنْ رُوحِ فَقَعُوا لَهُ سَاجِدِينَ That when I have fashioned him and molded him, and I have blown into him of my spirit, of my ruh, then fall into prostration before him. So when Allah commanded the angels, to prostrate to Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam, our forefather, they weren't <coughs> simply prostrating to his body. Rather, as Allah says, when I have fashioned him, i.e. when I have perfected his creation, that's the meaning of sawaitu. It means to perfect, to make very good, equal and level and proportionate. So even after leveling, perfecting, balancing and making the body of Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam beautiful and proportionate, still Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't say to the angels that prostrate to this body. Rather, the additional condition was, And I have blown into him of my spirit. So ultimately, what they were prostrating to was Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam, but most importantly, the ruh in him that is connected with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
that has a special and unique relationship with Allah. Otherwise, the body, the body undergoes many changes. And Allah created the ruh before the body. And in this dunya, the body serves as a box, a cage, a container. But the real cargo is within. And that container begins with life in this world and ends with life in this world. When a person passes on, the body decomposes and ultimately the flesh, the bones and all the matter which make up the body disappear, disappears. But what lives on is the ruh, the spirit. And this is a message that we find in virtually every act of ibadah and every teaching of religion, ultimately. The emphasis on the ruh. This is what the whole month of Ramadan is about. It's to divert our attention from fast, from eating, from serving this body, serving one's flesh, one's bones and blood, and focusing on the much neglected ruh in the spirit. And the only way of doing that is to starve the body. When you starve the body and neglect it, then you are able to divert your attention and your resources of energy, of time, of focus onto your ruh. And Allah imposes that on us for one whole month. We don't have a choice. Every able-bodied individual, adult, in Islam must fast as an obligation. Of course, there are concessions and dispensations, but that's another matter. Ultimately, it's an obligation. We have to do it. And it's almost as though we are being compelled, compelled to turn attention away from the service of the body to the service of the ruh. Because that's what makes us who we are, ultimately. And as I said, this is something which is to be found in almost every teaching of religion. Every act of ibadah leads to something within. It's not just external. So salah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in the munkar Indeed, prayer leads to, or, or it prevents, prayer prevents lewdness, indecency, and sin. So these outward, external, functional movements of the body, the postures, the movements, even the recitation, the tilawa, all of these are external, but they are supposed to reflect internally, and they are supposed to introduce change within a person. 
And if that salah is not a proper salah, it won't do its job of transforming an individual. Ultimately, the goal of the salah is to work on the ruh, not the body. The goal of the fast is to work on the ruh. Allah says, in the entire Qur'an, Allah only mentions one very specific and direct objective and purpose of fasting, which is that, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الصِّيَامُ وَكَمَا كُتِبَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ O believers, fasting has been prescribed for you as it was prescribed for those who came before you. Why? لَعَلَّكُمْ تَتَّقُونَ Perhaps you may become muttaqi. You may adopt taqwa. Taqwa is not to do with the body. Ultimately, it's to do with the ruh. So whether it's prayer, whether it's fasting, even zakah, Allah says to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, خُذْ مِنَ مُوَالِهِمْ صَدَقَةً تُطَاهِرُهُمْ وَتَزَكِّيهِمْ بِهَا وَصَلِّ عَلَيْهِمْ That, O Messenger of Allah, take from their wealth such charity that through that charity, that charity purifies them and cleanses them. So, and what's charity supposed to achieve in terms of cleanliness, cleansing, purification? It means the cleansing of the soul, the purification of the ruh and within. And I'll get back to this later when I actually speak about the real meaning of tazkiyah. And Allah uses that word here, what does a him biha? So, whether it's fasting, whether it's charity, whether it's prayer, every single act of ibadah, another pillar of Islam, is the shahadatain, the utterance of the faith. So, for a person to say, Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah wa ashadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. That is simply the beginning. It's very easy to say the kalimah. It's very easy to repeat the words, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadar Rasulullah. For those words to actually have a reality within, that's a true test. Once Habi radiyallahu anhu asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for advice, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told him, Qul amantu billah, say I believe in Allah. Then be steadfast. So the first part of the hadith is very simple. For a person to say, Amantu Billah, I've believed in Allah. It's the latter which is the true test. Then be steadfast. And in Surah Al Hujarat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about Bedouin at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Qalat al A'rabu Amanna. That the Bedouin have said, we have believed, we have embraced Iman. <coughs> Say to them, O Messenger of Allah, you have not believed. Now this wasn't a denial of their embracing faith. They had become Muslim. They had testified to the oneness of Allah and the prophethood of the Messenger So they had uttered the shahadatain. But uttering the shahadatain is very easy. 
So for a person to utter the Shahadatain as they had done, and in fact, they would have done it in a far better manner than we can even imagine. Because they were in the, during the time of the Prophet They were his contemporaries. They received and embraced the message of the Prophet during his time. They were his people. Some of them met him. And despite meeting with the Messenger despite embracing Islam, despite uttering the Shahadatain, despite being blessed by his company to some degree, despite all of these things, when they said, and when they claimed, that Amanna, we are mu'min, we have believed, we are believers, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said to the Messenger sallallahu Tell them you are not mu'min, you are not true believers. Say you have not believed. So what was Allah denying? They had uttered the shahadatain. They had embraced Islam. They had become Muslim. Rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then said, وَلَكِنْ rather قُولُوا say, أَسْلَمْنَا We have embraced Islam, i.e. we have submitted apparently. وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ And that an iman, true faith, has not yet entered your hearts. So there's a clear difference between the outward functions of all the four Pillars of Islam, Hajj, Zakah, fasting, and prayer, Salah, and even the central pillar of Shahadatain, the utterance of the faith. All of these have an external reality, but until their inner reality is not realized, which is ultimately within the Ruh, with the Ruh, then they are not doing their job, they are not fulfilling their objective and purpose. Because very much of religion is ultimately about the ruh because that's what makes us who we are. As I was saying earlier on, our bodies change all the time. Meaning, we, we focus so much attention on our bodies and yet we are constantly shedding parts of our bodies and regrowing them. Our nails, our hair, our skin, the cells within our body. Every couple of weeks, almost, so many different parts of our body are replaced entirely. Every couple of weeks. Our skin, certain cells, they are replaced entirely. So, from, in fact, a few weeks, and definitely a few months, down the road, from now, every single one of us will not have a single piece of the original part of that body that we have, we have now. It's forever changing. Always changing. I don't mean the whole body, of course, but certain, many cells. All these cells have a lifespan. And the lifespan of many cells in the body is just a couple of weeks, one or two months, some of them just one month. Our skin. These are the things that undergo constant change. 
So the core structure may be there, but even with the core structure, different parts are changing all the time. So none of us have the body that we were born with. And we do not know when we will die, but if we live on for some time, we definitely won't have the same body at our death that we have now. And even if someone has a very long life, in fact, especially for those who have a long life, they have undergone so many different changes in their bodies that we could argue that they, as an individual, have moved from cage to cage, from box to box throughout their life. So which box is so valuable? Which container is the most valuable? The one we have now, the one we had six months ago, the one we had two years ago, the one we will have a year from now, if we live on till then. We lavish so much attention to this body which is forever changing. It's always changing. It's never the same. Because that's not who we are. Rather, who we are is the ruh that resides within us. And how much attention do we pay to our bodies? Medicine, health, cosmetics. These are billion dollar industries, every single one of them in isolation. The amount of money we spend on cosmetics, on appearance, on clothing, and I don't mean necessary clothing, but to look good. To look good, to appear good, with our features, our complexion, our appearance, our clothing, our attire. Health and gym. Although some people associate a gym with health and fitness, there are others who associate gyms not with health and fitness, but rather cosmetics and appearance. It's about how you look. And there's a common phrase, your body is your temple, worship it. And some people do literally worship their bodies. In fact, to some degree, the, we can say that's about ourselves, every one of us. We lavish so much attention on our bodies that it's almost a form of ibadah, it's a form of worship. Toning, tanning, shapings, sculpturing. We do that with our bodies in order to win attention, to attract attention. And we think that's who we are. That's not who we are. We are not simply a bag of flesh, blood and bones. Rather, we are the ruh that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created in a unique fashion, which is connected to him, which is related to him, which Allah blew into Sayyidina Adam alayhi salam, as he says, of himself. And it's that ruh which existed before the body, which exists and which remains the same ruh. Although it undergoes changes, those changes are external that we impose on the ruh. Otherwise, the ruh as an entity does not constantly change. We do not go through many different ruh or arwah and souls throughout our life as we go through so many different bodies. 
We have one ruh which we are born with, which we live with, which we shall die with. And with that same ruh, we shall be resurrected. With that same ruh, we shall stand before Allah. Everything else undergoes permanent change. It comes, it goes, it flows and it ebbs. It passes through us and it disappears again. Like water. The majority of us is water. And yet, is that water constant in our body? Our major constituent is not meat, is not flesh, it's water. We are mostly made up of water. And yet we know, we take in the water, we pass it out. It constantly passes through us. The only thing that's constant in us, that is a single entity which remains from the beginning till the end, is the Ruh. And yet we totally neglect it, even though that's the essence of life. It really is the essence. And until we don't pay attention to the inner reality and we continue to pay attention just to the form and the function, we will, lose, we will continue to miss the real objective. This is one of the reasons why we pray Salah for so long. We recite the Quran with our tongues for so long. We do tasbih and we do dhikr with our tongues for so long. We fast for one whole month every single year. And yet, rather than judging others, let every single one of us question ourselves. How much of an effect have these acts of ibadah had on me? Every single year we fast. Someone asked me a question just yesterday. Someone sent me a question. And the question was, it's a very long question. The gist of it is that why is it that some people have been studying religion under a teacher for 30 plus years. Or in the case of others, they undergo religious training <coughs> and activities for prolonged periods each year, periodically. And yet, even after 30 years of studying, of worshipping, of practicing, of being religiously observant, they continue to commit sins, not just minor sins, but major sins. And remember, major sins are not just the sins of the body. Major sins are also associated with the tongue, which are far easier to commit. So the question was specifically in relation to the tongue. Now why is it that they continue to commit major sins of the tongue, even after 30 years of practicing, of learning? And the answer is to do with what I've been discussing. That we can, as long as we continue to focus on the form and the external reality, without that external reality having an inner reflection and an inner reality, 
then all of these acts of ibadah will purely remain perfunctory and functional. They won't realize their inner reality or achieve their purpose. For instance, fasting. If we reduce fasting to just simply remaining hungry and thirsty, just as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, Prophet sallallahu says in a hadith, مَن لَمْ يَدَعْ قَوْلَ الزُّورِ وَالْعَمَلَ بِهِ فَلَيْسَ لِلَّهِ حَاجَةٌ فِي أَنْ يَدَعْ طَعَامَهُ وَشَرَابَهُ That if someone abandons, oh sorry, if someone does not shun and does not abandon sinful speech and sinful deeds, then Allah has no need of his remaining hungry and thirsty. So if someone fasts, this is what, what, what's in, what the hadith is in relation to, it's about fasting. If someone fasts, and they observe the fast of the stomach and the throat, in that they don't drink or eat, but they do, while shunning food and drink, they don't shun sins of the tongue, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has no interest in their remaining hungry and thirsty. Allah has no need of their remaining hungry and thirsty. They can continue remaining hungry and thirsty. Their fast is not regarded by Allah or accepted by Allah. And that's all it is. So we seriously need to ask ourselves, if my fast is not a fast, because it's just a functional, physical, external application, an external act of worship, without any reflection on the inner ruh, then... Am I achieving absolutely nothing? Am I losing both the dunya and the akhirah? In that I don't get any reward, any benefits as far as deen is concerned. No reward, no taqwa, no tazkiyah. And at the same time, I'm losing out in the world as well, in the dunya, by remaining hungry and thirsty. And we can apply this to every single act of ibadah. We go through so much. In order to go to the masjid, we take out time. We travel. We... Pray, we undergo all these motions. Whether we pray at home or the masjid, we do it five times a day. We do wudu, we pray salah, we take time out, we undergo all of these movements, postures and motions. Five times a day. And yet if we have been doing this for years in, years out. And yet salah, as Allah has promised in the Qur'an, does not prevent us from fahsha and munkar, from indecency and from sin. And we really should question our salah. And what are we achieving? Nothing. And the Prophet says this, referring to someone who prays Asr Salah very late. Prophet says that one of them waits until right at the end time of Asr. Until, what does he do then? When the sun is in between or upon the horns of shaitan. He rises. And how does the Prophet ﷺ describe his salah? He says, He pecks four times. He pecks. Just like a bird. Pecks on the ground. Rapid pecking. 
So the Prophet ﷺ describes his ruku' and his sujood, his bowing and his prostrating as pecking. And that's the Prophet ﷺ's description of his salah. And at the beginning of the hadith, he says three times, Tilka salatul munafiqeen, tilka salatul munafiqeen, tilka salatul munafiqeen. That this is the prayer of hypocrites. This is the prayer of the hypocrites. This is the prayer of the hypocrites. And the Prophet ﷺ doesn't simply say he does ruku' rapidly or he prostrates fast. Rather, he says, arba'an, he pecks four times. So we should ask ourselves, is our salah a proper salah? Or are we losing both the dunya and the akhirah by simply pecking a number of times each day? in the manner in which we perform our salah. Whichever act of ibadah we take, all of them have an inner reality because ultimately most of the teachings of Islam are not to do with the body, they're to do with the ruh. And that's the most neglected part of our religion. Now, I promised to speak about dhuzqiyah today. So where does dhuzqiyah come into all of this? Now many of us will have heard the word dhuzqiyah often and normally it's translated as purification or cleansing which is correct it's not incorrect but it's actually a partial translation just like the word taqwa taqwa is often translated as a fear of allah which is not incorrect but the fear of allah is just one of the many meanings of taqwa it's a partial meaning taqwa has a much broader meaning Similarly, Dazgir has a much broader meaning than simply purification. What Dazgir actually means is nurturing, to nurture. And before I begin to explain that, as I said earlier, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made man, man because of his ruh. That's the real person in us. That's the essence of our life, not the body, not even the mind, not even the brain. There's a real debate in neurology about whether there is any difference between the brain as a physical entity and the mind. Some neurologists and scientists are of the opinion that there's no difference because the mind is the product of the physical brain. And when I say mind in the context of the brain, I'm referring to this higher consciousness. But there are many neurologists and leading scientists who are now increasingly in increasing numbers of the view that there is a reality beyond the brain. There is something beyond other than the brain. Now some of them call it the mind. So when they use the word mind, they regard it as being something distinct from the brain. So it's something else that exists other than the physical brain. 
Some of them call it the ego. Some of it call it the mind. Others, and in religion, in religious terms, people call it the spirit or the soul. Whether we call it the spirit, whether we call it the soul, whether we call it the mind as a separate entity from the brain, the physical brain, whichever name we give it. <coughs> Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, وَيَسَلُونَكَ عَنِ الرُّوحِ قُلِ الرُّوحِ مِنْ أَمْرِ رَبِّي وَمَا أُوْتِيتُمْ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا And they ask you about the ruh, about the soul, about the spirit. Say to them that the ruh is a matter of my Lord and you have not been given knowledge except very little. All we know, whether we call, some call it the mind, some call it the ego, some call it the spirit, the soul, we call it the ruh. Whichever name we give it, there are two realities to it. One is that it exists. It is there. It truly exists. The other, we will never be able to fully and truly understand it. Because Allah has deprived us of that knowledge. But we know it's there, we know it exists. And that's a ruh. And that's what makes us who we are, truly. And the ruh has a life. So it's not, we, we are not just brains and bodies. We have a soul, a spirit, a ruh. And that's our real essence of life. That's who we are. And just as our body needs life, it needs oxygen, it needs care, attention, it needs nourishment, it needs food and drink, similarly, our ruh needs nourishment. The body can't survive without food and drink. Everybody recognizes that. In fact, we even believe in giving our brains nourishment by way of entertainment. The nourishment of the body is food and drink. The nourishment of the mind is mental stimulation and entertainment. But there is something else in us. And it's not just something else that we should regard as secondary. No, there is something in us. In fact, who we truly are, not even something else. And this may sound a bit strange, but think of it this way. Who are we? Who are we? Are we the body? Are we the brain? Or are we the spirit? Who are we? Are we our bodies? Or are our bodies attachments? Just like clothes. And I will say that our brains are not us. Our bodies are not us. They really aren't. They are attachments. They are things that we use in life. And the moment we begin to think that we are our brains, we are our bodies, we deny our very existence. Because who we are is the ruh. 
That's who we are, not the body. As I said, the body is like a cage or a box or a container that we wrap around ourselves. Similarly, the brain is a tool. It's a thing which Allah has given us at birth. And actually, even the brain undergoes physical changes. Throughout our lives, the brain undergoes physical changes. Miraculously, just as when part of the body is wounded or damaged, the brain as a physical entity, when it undergoes damage, it actually repairs itself. So the brain undergoes physical changes because it's a tool. So our brains are separate from us. Our bodies are separate from us. They really are. And Islamically, my understanding is this. How would I argue, or how, why do I think that the brains are not us, the bodies are not us? SubhanAllah. In the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that on the day of judgment, we will die without our bodies. And Allah will resurrect us. And then Allah will give us our bodies again. Or give us bodies again. And what will happen on the day of reckoning? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَوْمَ تَشْهَدُ عَلَيْهِمْ أَلْسِنَتُهُمْ وَأَيْدِيهِمْ وَأَرْجُلُهُمْ بِمَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ On that day, on the day, when their tongues and their hands and their feet shall testify against them of what they used to do. In another verse of the Qur'an, until when they shall come to it, meaning the fire of Jahannam, شَهِدَ عَلَيْهِمْ سَمْعُهُمْ وَأَبْصَارُهُمْ وَجُلُودُهُمْ Their hearing and their eyes, their sides and their skins will testify against them. And then in the next verse, Allah says that people will say to them, And they will say to their skins, as well as to their other limbs, Why did you testify against us? So the limbs of the body will reply, That that Allah who gave the power of speech to all things, this day gave us power of speech. So think of it, all our limbs, and by the very words of the Qur'an, our tongues, our hands, our feet, our ears, our eyes, our skin, all of these parts of the body will actually testify against us. So if we are them, how can we then imagine this? That How can we imagine this conversation between the person and the parts of the body? When man will say to the skin, to the hearing, to the eyes, to the ears, 
to the limbs, the hands and the feet, that why did you testify against me? Because the body is something else. He won't say, why am I testifying against myself? It will be something else testifying against him. We don't need to be too philosophical about this. All I'm trying to say, I'm not pointing out a point, of, well, I'm not mentioning a point of aqidah. This isn't a theological point or a dogmatic point. I'm just trying to explain in my own way why and how we should be focusing our attention on our ruh, on our spirit, because that's who we truly are. And that our bodies and even our brains are Pieces of flesh, bones and blood, and tools that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us as items, as equipment to use, as a, a box, a container, a cage to place ourselves in, as a form of outer clothing, which we can actually wear and shed, wear and remove. But that's not who we are. Who we are is just the ruh. And the most remarkable thing is that we are so worried about the life, the food, the nourishment, the drink, and the health, and the illness of all these other things that are not even us. But we are not worried about our own health. When we say my health, am I talking about the health of my arm? And the health of my feet? Or am I talking about my health? And when we speak of health, we're always talking about the health of the body, which, is even, which isn't even us. Even mental health. We're talking about the health of the brain, which isn't even us. So when are we going to start speaking about or becoming concerned about and worrying about our health? Not the health of our bodies or the health of our brains, but our health. As to who we are. That's a ruh. When are we going to feed ourselves not the feed the body feed ourselves when are we going to give nourishment to ourselves not our brains but our bodies that's what dazkia is about dazkia is not just about cleaning it's not just about purifying when we say the word dazkia it doesn't just mean purification it means nourishment it means giving life it means enabling to grow and flourish. And that's mentioned and explained best by the verses of the Quran in Surah Al-Shams. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَالشَّمْسِ وَضُحَاهَا وَالْقَمَرِ إِذَا تَلَاهَا وَالنَّهَارِ إِذَا جَلَّاهَا وَالْلَيْلِ إِذَا يَغْشَاهَا وَالسَّمَاءِ وَمَا بَنَاهَا وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا ضُحَاهَا وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا Allah swears by so many things. Allah swears by himself in, the, in these verses. And refer to my tafsir of Surah Al-Shams. But here, after swearing by himself and by many objects of his creation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَأَلْهَمَهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ زَكَّاهَا وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ So Allah says, وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا Allah swears by the soul. 
and by the soul. وَمَا سَوَّاهَا And by him, by Allah, who fashioned and created and perfected the soul. Then he inspired it to its sinfulness. Or he guided it to its, or he enabled it to its sinfulness and its taqwa. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Speaking about the soul, speaking about the spirit, speaking about the ruh, Allah says, Indeed, has scored a success. He who gives the soul tazkiyah. And that's best understood by the next verse or by the next word. And indeed has perished he who stunts the growths or prevents the growth of the, of the soul, of the spirit. So, which Allah mentions later, which reads, leads to a person's ruin and downfall and ultimate perishing. What does Dadsiyah mean? What does Dadsiyah mean, which Allah refers to here? Tadsiyah means stifling, suffocating, strangling. Not literally, but these are all to be understood together. Suffocating, strangling, preventing, choking, and killing off, and stunting. Preventing the rise and the flourishing and the growth. Depriving. All of these meanings can be understood in the word dadsiyah. And allow me to explain a few words which are all related. And in that way we will be able to understand dadsiyah. In Arabic... We, we've all heard of the word tarbiyah. It's one of these Arabic words that is, has, has been imported into most languages. And everyone uses the word tarbiyah in its original Arabic form. So we either say tarbiyah as it's pronounced in Arabic or tarbiyat with the ta at the end as it's pronounced in other languages. But the word is tarbiyah. And if we ask ourselves, what does tarbiyah mean? We normally reply by saying upbringing. To bring up a child. That's what upbringing is. So we, we often hear the phrase, we should give our children an Islamic tarbiyah. Where does the word tarbiyah come from? It comes from the words, or the root word, <coughs> root letters, riba. Riba and raba. The word riba, what does riba mean? Usury, interest. And everyone knows riba. Do you know tarbiyah is related to riba? Because what does riba mean? 
Riba means flourishing, growth. You have a hundred pounds, you earn riba, interest on it, then you get a hundred and ten pounds. That additional ten pounds, that's the element of riba, that's the growth on the original hundred. That's why it's called riba. And tarbiyah is related to it. In fact, what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say in the Qur'an? Allah gives riba to sadaqat. Allah gives riba to sadaqah. Which means that Allah gives growth to sadaqah. If you give one pound of sadaqah, charity in the way of Allah, if you give one pound in the way of Allah as charity, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give it growth, will cause it to flourish until that one pound becomes 700. And it can even grow more. That's true riba. And in another verse of the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا آتَيْتُم مِّن رِبًا لِيَرْبُوَ فِي أَمْوَالِ النَّاسِ فَلَا يَرْبُوَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ وَمَا آتَيْتُم مِّن زَكَاةٍ تُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَ اللَّهِ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُضْعِفُونَ Allah says, what you give of riba so that it may grow with people, realize that it doesn't grow with Allah. فَلَا يَرْبُوَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ but what you give of zakah, seeking Allah's countenance therein, then these are the ones, i.e. the givers of zakah, who will realize a growth, who will see a multiplication. multiplication. So, riba means growth. Raba yarbu riban. That means to grow. Another word which is similar is nama. Which means to grow. And speaking of riba, have you, do you know the marmalade in Asian languages, especially in Gujarati? What is it called? Anyone recall? Have you ever heard the phrase murabbo? What's murabbo? It sounds like a t- typical Asian word. Murabbu is originally from Arabic. It means murabba. That's what marmalade is, murabba. And why is it called murabba? Because rabba yurabbi tarbiyatan. It's being cultivated. So you cultivate and you grow and you prepare over time the marmalade or the murabba. So, although it sounds a typical Asian Gujarati word, murabba actually comes from Arabic. That's it's related to tarbiya. So, raba yarbu riban means to grow. Another similar word is nama yanmunmuwan, which means to grow and to flourish, and to cause to grow is tanmiya, and to grow itself, to flourish itself, is nama yanmunmuwan. Another word, which is again related, is zakah yasku zakah, which means again to grow. And tazkiyah, just like tanmiyah and tarbiyah, means to cause to grow, to cause to flourish. 
So whether you say Raba Yarbu Riban, Zaka Yazku Zaka or Nama Yanmu Numuan, all of these words, Nama Yanmu, Zaka Yazku, Raba Yarbu, all mean to grow and to flourish. And all related words which mean to cause to grow, to cause to flourish or to help flourish, and which would mean uh, cultivation or growing are the words tarbiyah, tanmiyah, and tazkiyah. And all of these words are related to plants, the cultivation of plants. So, and it's a perfect example. When you take a plant, a simple plant, subhanAllah, <laughs> rather coincidental, on the way here just now, I was listening to I just switched on the radio, as is typical, you sit in the car and you switch on the radio. So I switched on the radio and it was Gardener's World. So they were talking about lavender and plants and uh, horticulture. And the care and the attention that they were talking about. So the specific question when I was coming here was, a lady was asking about lavender. And the panel was answering questions about how the bed of lavender flowers and plants should be facing in the direction. So you should have a plot which is facing in a particular direction, not the other direction, so that it gets a minimum of eight hours of sunshine in summer, etc. And the terminology, the phrases, the care, the time, the attention, that all of this was being mentioned, the pruning, the new, subhanAllah. And that's just in the few minutes that it took me to get here. And that's true. You can take a single pot, a plant pot, and yet you have to give it so much attention, so much. Many years ago I read and I've mentioned this more than once, about a plant, that when you buy a plant from a garden centre and you bring it home, you need to leave the plant for two, three days before feeding it any nutrients and before doing anything with it. Just leave it in one place, don't constantly move it about. Why? So that it can overcome the shock of having been moved from its original location to a new habitat and so that it can settle in and become adapted to its new environment. And that's a pot, of, that's a plant in a pot. You allow it to overcome the shock. And then, what do you need to do? You need to provide the right nutrients, not too much, not too little, the right amount of heat, the right amount of sunlight the right amount of shade, the right amount of warmth, the right amount of water, again, not too much, not too little. And all of this for one pod, one plant. This is where all these words come in, tarbiyah, tanmiyah, and tazkiyah. Tarbiyah, to cultivate, to nurture. So you have to cultivate this plant in such a way Throughout its lifetime, constant care and attention, monitoring its water levels, its nutrients, its energy, its heat, 
its food and drink, its shade, its light, its warmth and cold. And that's for one plant. So this is where all the words come in of tarbiyah, tazkiyah and tanmiyah. What are you doing? Ultimately, you are uh, through tarbiyah, tazkiyah and tanmiyah, you are helping and enabling and allowing this plant to flourish, to grow. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah Al-Shams. That وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ دَسَّاهَا Indeed, perished, has perished he who does what to the soul? Who suffocates the soul and prevents it from growing and flourishing. <coughs> the one who kills off the soul. The one who deprives the soul. And what's the opposite of someone suffocating the soul and stunting its growth? Is someone who gives it life, who gives it, who enables it to grow and to flourish. That's the true meaning of duskia. It means nurturing, cultivating. And that's how we should look at our ruh. Not simply as to cleanse our spirit. No. The way we should look at our spirit is. When we say, it's remarkable, isn't it? When we say our spirit, when we say our spirit, when we say us, we refer, we refer to our bodies and our brains that aren't us. But when we say our spirit or our ruh, we refer to ourselves as something else. Even though in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in a verse in which he speaks about tazkiyah, in many verses. So where does Allah speak about tazkiyah? Concentrate on these verses. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in one of the surahs, هُوَ الَّذِي بَعَثَ فِي الْأُمِّيِّينَ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُمْ يَتْلُوَ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيَعْلِمُهُمُ الْكِتَابُ وَالْحِكْمَةِ That it is he, Allah, who has sent amongst the unlettered people a messenger from themselves. What does he do? يَتْلُوْ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ He recites the verses of Allah to them. him, And he does their tazkiyah. وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابُ وَالْحِكْمَةِ And he teaches them the book and wisdom. There are three other verses, similar verses in the Qur'an. All speaking about the duty of the Prophet ﷺ. And he had three duties. One, to convey the verses of Allah to the creation. Two, to teach the people the meaning of those verses. And number three, to, to, to do their tazkiyah. And what does their tazkiyah mean? It means to nurture them. That's what the Prophet ﷺ did. He nurtured them. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses this phrase about the Prophet ﷺ and the Ummah, does he use the words, he purifies their souls? Or does he use the words, him, meaning he purifies them, he nurtures them? Not their souls, it's not, anfusahum, and he purifies their souls. It's not that, it's, and he purifies them. And again, purification is a partial translation. It's a partial meaning. I would rather translate it as nurtures. He nurtures them. 
So he conveys the words of Allah to the people. They receive them. He then explains the words of Allah to the people. They then understand them. These are two duties of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then what was his third duty? Which was, once they have received the verses, once they have understood the verses, what does, Allah, what does the Prophet sallallahu do to them? He doesn't just purify them. He nurtures them. He does their tarbiyah. Just like a father, a parent, nurtures a child. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam nurtured the sahaba radiyallahu anhum. In everything. That means he helped them grow and flourish. He cultivated them. He cultured them. He nurtured them. He provided them with everything. He's the one who grew them. He molded them. He fashioned them. He changed them. Prophet did that to the Sahaba. That's the true and original meaning of this care. So when we say our spirit, remarkably, we are speaking about ourselves as being something else. So should we be saying we should purify our spirits, purify our souls, or should we be saying purify ourselves, purify, nourish ourselves, feed ourselves, nurture ourselves, cultivate ourselves? Not our spirit. Our spirit is not a separate entity. We are the spirit. We are the ruh. The body is a separate entity. The brain is a separate entity. The brain is just part of the body. The body is a separate entity. If we look at ourselves like that, then we will realize that how bizarrely, how we have placed ourselves in such a bizarre situation, whereby we starve ourselves, we feed the bo- our bodies. We, we, are, we neglect ourselves, but we are constantly concerned about the appearance and the health and the fitness of our bodies. Not ourselves, our bodies. We need to switch our way of thinking, because that's who we are. We are the ruh, we are not the body. And just like every living organism, just like a plant, our ruh requires care, attention. It can't just grow by itself. It's like a helpless child. It really is. That's why Allah says, has perished he who suffocates, who prevents the growth, who stunts the growth of the ruh. That's tadziah, by suffocating. Denying its food, its light, its heat, its warmth, its drink, its care and attention. That's dadziya. And the opposite is dazkiya. Which doesn't just mean to clean or to cleanse or to purify. It means to enable, to grow, to help grow, to help flourish. This is what we do with our children. Ultimately, our children have to grow up themselves. In the sense that they are not us, they're something else. But what do we as parents do? We provide them with all the necessary food, drink, love, care, attention, warmth. 
the environment, the tools, the, the learning, the knowledge, the education, the protection. We do all of this and so much more. And all of that should be regarded as being contained in one single word, tarbiyah. So if, and imagine, we, do, we have to do so much tarbiyah and tazkiyah for a plant. And the same for a child. Same for a pet. Remarkably, we give our dogs and cats more attention than we give our ruh. True? We ensure our pets. We give them food. We give them drink. We give them shelter. We give them love, care and attention. We give them friendship. And a lot of the time, we, in fact, or virtually all the time, we win that friendship from them too. So we pay more attention and we do more tarbiyah and tazkiyah of cats and dogs than we do of our own, of ourselves. Again, I shouldn't say we do of our spirits. It's not a separate entity than we do ultimately of ourselves. That's the meaning of tazkiyah. It doesn't just mean purification of the soul. That's a correct translation and meaning, but it's a partial translation and meaning. Ultimately, Dazgir is much greater. It means a nurturing, the cultivation, and the growing of our ruh. It requires everything. It requires food and drink. The body, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, مِنْهَا خَلَقْنَاكُمْ وَفِيهَا نُعِيدُكُمْ وَمِنْهَا نُخْرِجُكُمْ تَارَةً أُخْرَى Again, this is another verse which explains to us why our bodies are something else? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does he say about the creation of the spirits? About the creation of Adam alayhi salam. Allah says, فَإِذَا سَوَّيْتُهُ When I have created him, وَنَفَخْتُ فِيهِ مِنْ رُوحِ He did not become man just with the body. He only became man. He only became Adam alayhi salam once Allah had blown into him of his spirit. And did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create the ruh from the soil of the earth? Or did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create the ruh in the heavens? Where? From the soil of the earth or the heavens? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Of the earth, مِنْهَا خَلَقْنَاكُمْ وَفِيهَا نُعِيدُكُمْ وَمِنْهَا نُخْرِجُكُمْ تَارَةً أُخْرَى from it, the soil of the earth, we have created you. And to it, we shall return you. And from it, we shall resurrect you. And is Allah, is Allah speaking about spirits or our bodies? Our bodies. Our bodies, our ruh came from the heavens. Our bodies came from the soil of the earth. We were given these bodies of the earth when we came to the earth. When we shall leave the earth... That container will go back to the earth. But our ruh will carry on. It rises, as we learn in the hadith, when a person passes away. Long before the body is buried and interred in the earth. Long before. Immediately at the time of death, what happens with the ruh? The ruh rises and it's taken by the angels. It's actually wrapped by the angels and taken and the angels pass on the ruh 
from angel to angel, from group of angels to group of angels. Even though the body is still there, everyone weeps over the body. The family surrounds the body. The mourners surround the body. People weep over the body. But the person, the real individual, the real cargo, the essence of life that resided in that body has long disappeared. It hasn't just gone forever, never to return. No, it's risen to the heavens and it's been carried by the angels. And people mourn over the body. But that body will return to the earth where within a very short while it will begin to decompose and deteriorate and eventually disintegrate totally with only the brown bones remaining. So the ruh rises to the heavens. So the body, Allah says, Minha khalaqnakum, we have created you from the dust, the soil of the earth, and to the soil of the earth we shall return you, and from there we shall resurrect you. But the ruh comes from the heavens. Now since the body comes from the soil of the earth, everything's own nourishment comes from its source, from its original source and from its own origins. Since the body is from the earth, its nourishment must come from the earth. Everything's nourishment comes from its original source. So since the body is from the soil of the earth, the nourishment must come from the soil of the earth. And that means whether we are vegetarians, or vegans, or omnivores, or outright cannibals, all our food ultimately comes from the soil of the earth. Even if we eat meat, those meat have been, those animals have been fed and nourished on grass. And even if there's a chain, and even if it's fish, it's from the, from the earth. You can't put diesel or petrol in an electric engine. Nor can you charge up a petrol or diesel car from a power outlet. Similarly, the ruh is from the heavens, it's not from this earth. The food, the drink, and the medicine of the world do no good whatsoever to the ruh. They are incompatible. Since the ruh comes from the heavens, its nourishment must also come from the heavens. And what is that nourishment? It's revelation. It's the Quran. It's the dhikr of Allah. When Allah says, Know that in the remembrance of dhikr of Allah, to hearts find tumanina. Tumanina. Not happiness. Tumanina. And itmi'nam. Not happiness. 
What does tumanina mean? What does itmi'nan mean? I've said repeatedly, people misunderstand this verse. Again, people say, I've been doing the dhikr of Allah for so many years. I do tasbih every single day. Yet my heart remains perturbed. It remains disturbed. I remain in constant anxiety, agitation. I am discontent. I am displeased. Allah promises happiness in, with the remembrance of the heart. Oh, sorry, Allah promises happiness with the remembrance of Allah. I remember Allah often, but I don't find happiness. Because we're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong place. Allah has not promised happiness in this verse. Allah has promised itmi'nan and tumanina. Tumanina in Arabic is, simply means itmi'nan. But I'd use the word itmi'nan because it's a word which is used in Asian languages as well. Again, a word imported from the Arabic. So we all know what itmi'nan means. We say itmi'nan. In Urdu, we say itmi'nan. Which, which is that? Itmi'nan. What does itmi'nan mean? Allah has not promised happiness. Allah has promised itmi'nan. And there's a difference between the two. So when Allah says, know that in the remembrance of Allah, two hearts find itmi'nan. It's very different to in the remembrance of Allah, do hearts find happiness? What's the difference? Itmi'nan simply means for something to become settled. That's what it means. For something to settle. Just like when dust settles, or a coin settles, or an item becomes settled. And the meaning of settled is, it's no longer agitated, it's no longer moving constantly, it's no longer disturbed, it's no longer rumbling. Allah doesn't promise happiness with the remembrance of Allah, Allah promises itmi'nam. And how is that achieved? Even when someone dies, a family member, and we are bereaved, one can never be happy about that. One will shed tears, and one will grieve, one will mourn, and suffer the huge loss. One, even, one may even be in a state of shock. <clears throat> but, when we say to ourselves, and when we believe with heart and mind, just as the Prophet ﷺ did and said, that indeed we shall we belong to Allah and to Allah we shall return. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Inna lillahi ma akhath wa inna lillahi ma a'ata. Wa kullu shay'in indahu bi ajalim musamma. That to Allah belongs all that he has taken. And to Allah belongs all that he has given. And everything is only for an appointed time with Allah. Once a person believes this, with heart and mind, then they can cope with their loss and with their bereavement, knowing that it's not a moment of joy, it's not a moment of celebration, there can be no happiness in such a thing, but by attaching oneself to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that manner, and believing and feeling that with one's heart and soul and mind, what happens is that the hearts, our ruh, becomes settled. It's comforted. It finds comfort. It's comforted. It's like a child. 
A child may be sick. A child may be in pain. The parents cannot do much to re immediately relieve the pain. But by giving the child a shoulder, a cuddle, by embracing the child, by providing warmth and protection to the child and shelter, that child may still continue to feel the pain of illness, may still continue to suffer the symptoms of illness. They won't go away immediately and miraculously, but the child will feel, feel at peace, safe, content, cared for, loved. I say all of this because we should see our ruh as that child. It needs our attention. And again, we shouldn't say it. We should say we. Our ruh. We, we. We need care. We need attention. We need love. We need shelter. We need warmth. We need a warm embrace. We need food and drink and nourishment. We need energy. And the only ones who can provide that to ourselves is us. Only we can do it for ourselves and to ourselves. But with the right food. There's no point putting diesel in a petrol car. And the food and drink of this world and its stimulation and its entertainment can do no good whatsoever because they are, they're all utterly incompatible. They can do no good to ourselves, meaning to the Ruh. The only nourishment, food and drink that we require, not our bodies, but we, the ruh, is the nourishment of the heavens. This is how we will allow ourselves to grow and to flourish. And this is what the word dizkiah means. Just, again, something to think about. Have you... We always hear this phrase, Islamic tarbiyah, Islamic tarbiyah. We need to set up schools. We need to set up madrasas. We need to have classes. We need to have provisions for the tarbiyah of our children. For the tarbiyah of our children. What about the tarbiyah and the tazkiyah and the tanmiyah? the care, the cultivation, and the nurturing of adults. What about that? At which point do we stop eating and drinking? At which point? We never. Because we, our bodies, need constant f feeding, drinking, and attention. So we're always talking about Islamic tarbiyah. And by tarbiyah, we narrowly think... We narrowly apply this just to children. What about adults? What about the tarbiyah of adults? Whereas Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he mainly did the tarbiyah. Did he do the tarbiyah of children or did he mainly do the tarbiyah of adults? He did the tarbiyah of adults, the ummah. Mainly, of course, he did the tarbiyah of children as well. Mainly, his tarbiyah was for the adults. If the Sahaba عنهم, were in need of tarbiyah, 
And if they were in need of tazkiyah, which Allah mentions as the Prophet ﷺ's third duty, and they were the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, what about us? Are we not in need of tarbiyah, tazkiyah, and tanmiyah? Of course we're in need of tazkiyah. And tazkiyah doesn't just mean the purification of the soul, it means the cultivating, the cultivating, the nurturing of the soul, giving it growth, helping it to flourish. Now, there are many aspects. Uh, the question is, okay, how do we do it? Well, there are many aspects of tazkiyah, and inshallah, I'll touch upon these different aspects of tazkiyah in, in the future. I end with this. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who realize who we truly are. And who may I pray that Allah enables us to care for ourselves as we need to and as we should be caring for ourselves. I pray that Allah makes us amongst those whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides tazkiyah to so that we can do our tarbiyah, tazkiyah, and that we are amongst those of whom Allah says, قَدَ فَلَحَمًا زَكَّاهَا Indeed, has scored a success he who gives growth to the soul and enables it to flourish, and who gives it life. And indeed, and we pray that we are not of those of whom Allah says, وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ دَسَّاهَا And indeed, has perished he who suffocates the growth of the sun. Wa sallallahu sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik nashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiraka wa natubu ilayhi.